Welcome to the Washdown Podcast, episode number 52. And today is the conclusion of the two-part series with my wife, Rachel Willoughby-Green. Um, so, hope you guys enjoyed episode 51. Here's the conclusion of that conversation. Episode number 52 of the Washdown Podcast with guest Rachel Willoughby-Green. Mm. Yeah. The tool that people we talk about amongst ourselves because nobody talks about it publicly. Yeah. But I don't think that we're necessarily going to. It's one of those things, right? You look for the aftermath of stuff. But everybody's people are tired. Clinicians are tired. Clinicians are burned out. They're stressed. You know, it's because and it doesn't it doesn't let up. And then you, you get into the profession because you want to help people. Right. And then especially when you. Um, and depending on, you know, the population, but across the board, all populations, everybody's struggling, you know, um, I get tons of referrals and calls for all kinds of people, even if they know people will call and go, I know you work with first responders. I'm not a first responder, but I can't find anybody and I need help and I'm desperate or my child, you know, like child youth suicide is up. So, I mean, it's across the board a lot and that's what we do, right? Like we respond, we help. And so as soon as, and I, I feel like I've talked to a lot of clinicians about this because it doesn't stop. And then nobody, nobody goes like, are you okay? Or then you try to refer to somebody and then there's no referral and there's a wait list that's too long and you have somebody who's in crisis. And, and we know this for a lot of veterans and first responders and majority, like you guys don't preemptively seek help. You seek help when Hey. It's on fire. Hey. <laughs> we got this, okay? So, yeah, you got it until you don't. And so then you respond and you want to help. But I, I don't know. Like, what we talk about is different than, like, how raw do you want to get? Like, so let me, how many glasses of wine do you? Like, <laughs> how many? Yeah. Remember, you that, know? remember that intervention joke Stressful. you made when you walked in the house? <laughs> right. That wasn't a joke. That's what this is. <laughs> so let me, here, that leads me to a question. So now you got to tell somebody, no, you don't have an appointment form you can't fit them in what does that do to you i mean oh it's i mean I, it's I'm, awful, I'm not saying yeah. you're a piece of shit but does that make you that how you feel oh yeah like if i'm completely honest yeah, yeah like it feels it it feels awful like if i can't and i do my best to hold space or to make referrals or get somebody in with somebody else or offer you know i find time where time doesn't exist yeah you sacrifice um, time it feels home. awful yeah, and it's like, and because then you go into the space of what if? Well, what if this person, what if this person does go and hurt themselves, or they kill themselves, or you know? And then I, or I find out about that. Like I've had fears pop up where when there's a suicide, and I'll run through because if a story sounds similar, I immediately have a thought, and because I've lost people to suicide, that jumps in and goes, "Oh my God, was that somebody I didn't call back? Was that somebody that I didn't get on my schedule?" or you know, because, like, especially right now, like, it, you can't help but have those. And then, and I think that's the reality of it right now and for a lot of people. And obviously, everybody has their own experiences. So, like, I have mine because I've been exposed to certain things that then I'm, I don't ever want to have happen again. Yeah. But it's, and it's but tough, to, but you can't, the thing you can't, can't prevent help, what you can't predict. But you can't help everybody either. And that's, right. That's right. the hard part, and it's hard to learn even when you know it. Yeah. You still t try. And doing triage. Yeah. Like, that's one of the... So, one of the questions for one of my classes this week was triage. There you got 12 people in a bunker. You have enough food for three months for seven people. And you can't come out for three months. You got to pick, pick seven to stay. How do you get rid of them? Nelson's out. 
but it is and that's what clinicians are having to do right now is a lot of triage because you do have to go like can this person and i literally have to tell them because because of the people that i see right like if somebody calls me and i have to have that conversation i'm like if i'm looking at weeks out before i put somebody on my books it's like i need you to be really honest like do you feel like you can wait that long or not and for the most part i think that anymore i feel like people are being honest and even first responders are like no i'm struggling or especially if it comes through like peer support or something like that then i know like somebody's calling ahead of time going this person really needs help you, like you, you need to get in the younger population that's calling earlier um compared to the older and i, I guess at this point you know, it's, we're the older yeah i know right yeah 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 <laughs> we're when you walk in the station, I there's, there's plenty of that. times. I reject the old that. Guys. I reject that. <clears throat> Go ahead. Just because I was the second oldest yesterday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we we became those guys. Uh, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I do think the younger populations reach out. Or, I mean, there's a bit less pressure or stigma to, to be like, suck it up, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's more comfort in talking about it and and reaching out but i i think that i think the peer support part like if you come from a department where you trust your peer support um if there's enough talk about it because that's a that's a big protective factor um you know like having some kind of especially when it's coming from leadership or command staff to be able to kind of normalize some of the stuff and be addressing whether it's official debriefs or hot wash or whatever that and the CDC, we talked about this the other day of the things that even the CDC, when they're, you know, came out with their like um, call to action for against suicide awareness for first responders um, of the things that do help. Right. And having a clinically competent clinician who a culturally competent, clinically competent, you should be, <laughs> you all should be clinically competent. Well, um, stayed in a holiday in one. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but having a clinician who understands the populations or the culture, you know, like having some kind of support and um, destigmatization from command staff or leadership and having some sort of debriefs and peer support that that people trust and that they can reach out to, whether it's across departments or whatever. And that's why. Um, so I think when you do see that, there's enough coming out and talk about it where people are reaching out more. Um but obviously, like, that depends on where you're at, and that depends on the department, and, you know, but. Yeah, there are a lot of factors. I mean, you're talking about the culture of the department. Mm-hmm. So, and I, I would think that few, very few departments, I mean, <clears throat> probably more than I would think, but few departments are that forward thinking or have gotten to that point now. I think there are you know departments that are making strides mm-hmm. you know our department's one of them you know we're making big strides and but, but the biggest problem you run into is money yeah how do you pay for it yeah when 90 plus percent of your budget goes to salary yeah i mean there's you know, i mean unfortunately it's a real issue yeah you know what are you, what are you going to cut to pay for this because it's not like the budget's all willy-nilly yeah it's all important to, stuff yeah to I mean, pay and so for... is this and how much are you going to pay for it yeah well what can you do and i think that's where departments have to get creative on what can we do for free or for little money that's preventative mm-hmm. 
And uh, I mean, that's what the peer support and good training, because there are good programs here locally that do a 40 hour, you know, intensive peer support training. And like, like that piece is huge, right? Like we're not talking like a couple day peer support, like we're talking immersion in training and then also having a supportive team to help support that peer support, right? And then Mm -hmm. having a clinician to help support that. Because ideally, and for us, like when you have peer peer support to be able to reach out to um, or that's who is supporting you so it's not always on the clinician so that I'm not always getting the crisis calls because there is a lot you can do for each other. And it's huge, right? Mm -hmm. Like hearing from a peer versus hearing from a civilian clinician, like that's a whole different ballgame because the person's in there with you and gets it versus, you know, from from the outside looking in. And so um, we're going to say peer support doesn't cost outside of the training. Right. And so that piece, having a good EAP where you're vetting clinicians, that people aren't just going to, you know, I mean, it's you can have all the good intentions, but there's, you know, people have a lot of negative experiences with clinicians out there when they don't understand the population. Yep. Um, Tell us about that, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Thing is, I, I'm not the only one. Right. I, that, yeah. That cult, cultural competency is it's it's immeasurable because if you don't understand, you're just going to piss people off. Mm-hmm. I mean, I told the guy I talked to, to go fuck himself. And we were on session three out of five. And I was like, I'm not calling you back. We're done. I'll do it on my own. That's because that's how it felt. I'm like, I mm-hmm. still feel alone. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm dealing with burnout and how I can go back to giving a shit. And it was, it was awful. <laughs> I'll be honest, the guys, the guys at the station, that's what worked for me. You know, friends and family. Right. That's what worked. But, you know, not everybody has the same path they're going to take, but. Well, you know, and I've, we've talked about it and I've talked about it with several, multiple lots of people. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no one size fits all. No, and I I've, know what's going to work for you may not work for me, may work for James, may not. Who knows? But, and again, depending on where you've caught yourself at on that road, you may not necessarily need therapy. Maybe it is just peer support. Or maybe it's one or two sessions with a culturally competent clinician. Mm-hmm. You know, who's to say? But ultimately, that comes down to it's individual. But well, I and think it can take multiple things. Yeah, it's yeah. not just there. Like you got to well, turn yeah. over a lot of stones yeah. sometimes. Absolutely, to treat trauma. And I, and I think getting the the clinicians culturally competent is one going to talk to them before you know, like you and I going to talk to them before they see any patient, any anybody else. And then if they're not not culturally competent, but they want to be and they show that desire to be. Mm-hmm. Bring them in. Like, okay, these are the guys. These are the girls. Talk to them, not as a clinician, but as a friend. Get to know them. Mm-hmm. Now understand our life and what we do and how we see things. And you kind of train them. On a, and, you know, they've got the clinical side, but now we'll give you some experience with us. Mm-hmm. And then that's how we build our support group, essentially. Yeah. It's going to take time. Right. It ain't going to happen overnight. Yeah. Because we're some weird people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 
<laughs> very, put, we're put very, nicely. yeah, very closed to outsiders, mm-hmm. and you have to earn your way in. Yep, it's like a gang, pretty much. You that's, do, that's yeah. You so it's a big deal to <laughs> <laughs> jump in, jump out. <laughs> so, but no, I mean, that's just the fact of the matter. Is and I would assume police officers and military are pretty similar to that where, mm-hmm. you know, you're not one of us. You don't understand. Yeah. So. And you're, you're, and you're extremely leery of them because you're not one of us. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, one and there's. Of us. One especially of us. If, <laughs> if you're still working, three right? seconds away from saying it. <laughs> yeah. So for a veteran, it might look a little different versus somebody who's, you know, active duty or reservist or whatever. Um, because there's a chance that, well, this stuff could come out or where there's a record. And then for first responders, there's always that fear about, how is this going to affect my job? How is this going to affect my reputation? Mm -hmm. If the guys at the station know that I'm here laying on a couch, talking to a shrink, man. Yeah. So, and even, so for clinicians to even know that piece, right? Like, like my dream is to be able to come together with more clinicians where it's an office that is just that, like just the populations we serve. You know, that's who's coming in the door, Um, you know, but like one of the things like that's not my setting right now. Like I'm in a setting with and so there's a lot of civilians coming in. So majority of my clients and I just have I scheduled myself to where people can wait out in their truck or whatever and they text me. And so I can go and get them and they come right in. So they're not sitting in the waiting room, Um, you know, potentially either running into somebody or somebody seeing them or you know, somebody they arrested or ran a call on or whatever. So even little things like that of just understanding that, you know, your first responder may not want to come and just sit in the lobby because you don't know who else is going to walk through that door. So being able to just acknowledge that and create that kind of respect and safety that, like, just text me. I'll come and get you and you can come in, you know. I've definitely seen more openness, at least in our department, with it. Talking to guys like, oh, yeah, I'm going to see so-and-so. Yeah. I've been doing it for this many months. Yeah. You know, and kind of what happened. But that also depends on how well they know you. Yeah. Like if they can trust mm-hmm. you or not. Yeah. Well, a lot of, uh, I have found personally, a lot of people are still pretty shy to talk about stuff. Mm-hmm. And depending on where you work or what shift you're on or whatever. I mean, there are still those old thoughts. And yep. it's it, I, I, you know, looking at it as a whole, I've definitely seen a shift. Yeah, it's been it's slow and it's a little bit, but it's been getting. It's larger leaning. Gradually. It's leaning in the right direction. Yeah, it is. So and I've seen some yeah. other things that have been good. So see all kinds of. It good is things. like there's there's, there's like openness. Yeah, it is different, and and it's going to look different from fire service uh, law enforcement and because the you know just different risks and culture and yeah but that is why we need to continue to talk about it and why it needs to come from leadership and command too and then from people who other people respect and you, trust I, I think the only way to see the change and to make the change work is from the bottom up because mm, it comes from, if it comes from command or the management, or however you want to phrase it, people are going to see it as, oh, I'm getting forced to do this. But if it's coming from the bottom of the ranks 
and, and working its way up, it's, oh, you're going through this. We want to help. So you're, you're seeing it as they care more and they care about you. You're not just a warm body in a seat, hmm. which with a lot of companies or even certain part, you know, departments around because of staffing issues, that's what they're looking for is, a, you know, a warm body in a seat. This is what it feels like when you're the one doing the work. Yeah. Well, I think it has to go both directions. I think you have to have a command staff that is willing and able to do what needs to be done. But then also the membership has to step up. Yeah. And start making that shift. So I don't I don't think it's one way or the other. Because command staff can't mandate it because then no. the guys are But that's how people are gonna that's how people it. will feel. So when you, when it starts on the bottom and the command sees that, they're like all right, we recognize the need, we see it, we want to help. So now they're not forcing, you know, it's like, you know, reaching out and giving that hand up. You know, it's just like a basketball. You go down, your teammate comes over and puts his hand out. <clears throat> it's easier to get up as opposed to when they come over and grab your jersey and try to pull you up, what happens? Yeah, that's you're it. both on the ground. Yeah, that's that's where I'm getting with it. Yeah. Well, and I think my perspective, too, is not just how um, leadership and this is coming from me as a clinician and, you know, just the exposure to it. It's not just about like what policies or something that um, command staff is putting in place, but how they're also showing up in it. And so and even just owning their own stuff and acknowledging what some of their experiences have been, because there's a huge piece to normalize. Like I've been there, too, or I've struggled with that, too, or like this is normal. Like these are normal responses to abnormal situations, you know? And I think that that is a huge piece when people are like, I'm not crazy. <laughs> Somebody else has <laughs> felt like this, you know? Cause even that like numbing, and we talked about this the other day, cause um, of like, just kind of starting to feel like numb or not being aware of, cause what do clinicians do, right? Like you come in and we start, we want to go like what's going on inside you. And for a lot of, for a lot of military, for a lot of first responders, it's like, I don't know what the F's going on in here, right? Like, I can't, yeah. or you start to just feel like dead to it. Or if you start to look within it, it's going to feel like a flood and you're well, not going to be able to shut it down. And, you know, that reminds me of the other we were talking about to go along with that is, you know, the way that we're trained and the way that we think or whatever is we have to shut all that stuff down to do our job. You know, whenever we're on the scene of whatever call, personal feelings, emotions, all that stuff goes out the window because we have a task, we're oriented and do the task. Mm -hmm. And then that's it. You know, there's, we don't bring it back out and deal with it and all that stuff because right. we're never taught that part of it. Right. So how to turn it back yeah. on when you get home. Yeah. So we're, we get really good at turning it off. Mm -hmm. And then whenever we get home, something's uncomfortable, whatever. Well, this works at work. I'm going to start doing it here. So then you start doing that. So, and then again, steps, progressions. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause in a sense it's a, it's adaptive. It all comes out. Yep. <laughs> Over spaghetti. Right. <laughs> right. When it comes out as a thing, it's not that yeah, at all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it is like, so to normalize it, like it's adaptive in a way too, right? Mm -hmm. Like it doesn't matter if you're tired, if you're hungry, if you're stressed, if you have an emotional reaction to something, right? Because you have to do the job. Like the mission is bigger than that. Like handling your job is bigger than what it is that you're individually experiencing, right? In that moment. And so there's a piece of it 
that is adaptive and then there's a part that's learned right because you do you learn how to like compartmentalize it um but you're not taught like really really compartmentalizing on how to get it back out like how to address it or how to to change the we need to come up with a term for that because it's not compartmentalization it's like right it's not compartmentalization how compartmentalization should be used exactly yeah it's It's more about avoidance or shoving it under the rug or putting it in a black hole that you're never going to open up again which is not how it works yeah because avoidance just leads to and we know that like avoidance leads to more ptsd symptoms or leads to more pts symptoms which can lead to ptsd yeah so but i think and then that piece where you guys can help spouses is having some kind of awareness or some kind of agreement of how you talk about that stuff because the way that i describe it and like i don't know if you and I talked about it like Mad Libs, like filling in the blank, right? Because mm-hmm. if you come home in a certain state or you're quiet because you, there's my gong again, <laughs> I don't learn clearly. All right. Have a good night. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> like, my... Come back for part two when we tie our hands in <sighs> <with> the chair. <laughs> right. It's getting weird real quick. <laughs> Is to be able to say something, right? Like, so... When, so for example, you could, after, I don't know how long that was, you ran a... a, It was not very long. Once you were back on the job after everything, after getting out of the hospital and Valor and all that. Mm -hmm. So, and then you run a call that brings all that stuff back up, right? Like you run a suicide that just reminds you of everything that could have potentially. And then you're exposed to the family and all that, right? And like, you know how different that looks when the family is present and you're dealing with their emotions and not just the person you know the patient and so it was three days like i knew something was off right but think about it like mad libs of like here's pieces of your story and then here's all these blanks and then because of my my own experiences my the lens that i'm going to look through i'm going to fill in those blanks with my own information because you're not giving me any which then changes the narrative right it changes the story by the way that you fill in those blanks and so once you were able, and I know at that point I was able to like continue to just be like, no, really, like something's off. What is going on with you? Because I'm telling myself something else. And then you were able to acknowledge that and decrease it, right? Like be able to own what you were feeling, which you were trying to protect me, which is what a lot of partners do, right? It's like you come home, you want to protect your spouse from difficult things. But in that moment, you needed to own it. You didn't have to give me details of it, right? But enough to acknowledge what was going on. And then our both of our stress levels came down, right? Because mine knew because I could fill in the blanks and know what was really going on. Yours, because you could acknowledge the emotion of what you were experiencing and just go like, okay, I know what's going on. I can label it and then move on through it. And that's a big piece, I think, for partners to be able to come, even if it's like, I had a bad night or I didn't sleep or I ran a bad call. And you don't have to give details and spouses need to respect that and not push it and not ask for details or not push to know that you've got to have time to decompress, but saying something so that your spouse is not filling in the blanks. Because especially for so many spouses, like it goes to, he's talking to somebody else or he's leaving or he's, he's drinking or, you know, like we fill in the blanks with all kinds of different stuff and that changes the story. So... Yep. You got to give your spouses something. Yeah. It's about communication. 
I know where your mind went right there. Oh, that, that grin. <laughs> I was debating. Like, Should I? No, yes. No, yes. No, no, no. Yes. No, maybe. Okay, I won't. Yeah. <laughs> Mr. Moran, you've been Stuff unusually quiet for like the past 45 minutes. Yeah. Did you oh, turn your mic back on? <laughs> well, I get tired of getting yelled at for breathing in it. <laughs> Well, you're not supposed to put it in your mouth. It's getting creepy. It's not a cupcake. Well, and this was, I don't know if you remember last time we had Rachel on. Outside of just like kind of talking shit on you like we all had fun doing. Uh-huh. I really kind of sat back and just listened because this is the one story that I wasn't there for. Like mm, you yeah. two were and Chris was. And I wasn't. And <clears throat> I, I find myself, I don't really have a lot of questions. Like I can gather, well, A, a like you and I have. I know what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had talks about it, but it's it's actually just interesting hearing not only her perspective. I don't really care about you. Not only her perspective, I but, appreciate that. But Chris's perspective as well, because um, this this wasn't just a Jeremy event. It was it was just as traumatic for Chris as it was for Rachel as it was for you. Yeah, and that's the thing that's often overlooked is of how many people a suicide or a suicide attempt actually affect. It's not just me or her. You know, it's it affected Chris, it affected Jane by association, you know. Right. And all you, of my family. Yeah. All, all your of nieces her, and nephews. All of your family. Yeah. So I mean, you're talking you're getting into the triple gi- mm. triple digits really fast. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when you if you can take it a step further when you look at work. Yeah. Your your crew. Yeah. The entire Shift and battalion, and even yeah. others, because now we gotta fill in. Yeah. So it just adds. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's far-reaching. Yeah. And, and nobody really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the one the, the thing that people don't think about. Yeah. Well, and, and what's interesting is like you have the opportunity to think about it because you are still here. Yeah. Right. Like. Right, because this entire story, right, even like me and my life and my work would look profoundly different right now. And I may not be doing what I'm doing at all, or I may still be because of it. Um, but it looks very different because he's still alive. Which then gives us the opportunity to to do this and to talk about it more. Um, you know, it's it's like, and it's a terrible analogy, but hear me out. It's like... <laughs> I end, love it when people preface stuff like that. <laughs> well, I mean, it's like at the end, just hear me out, damn it. It's like at the end of Twister, right? When they actually get to throw the shit up in the tornado and they see it like. You mean Dorothy 5? Yeah, but like, say essentially, right. we've, we've kind of well, got an inside man. We've got somebody that's been down there to where most people don't return and has returned. So it's. The, We're getting a lot more information than yeah. anybody else has that's sitting on the outside. Right. Right. Yeah. So like Twister. I like oh, how, I like how oh, you reach the little for things that, that go up yeah. into the tornado yeah. and then they get all the data yeah, from that's, it. That's yeah. Dorothy Five. Was the first four <laughs> failed. <laughs> oh. That, that's okay. Movie we sorry, watch a I got lot it now. House. I forgot loves, it was called Dorothy. I thought you were trying to like. Loves that movie. I do too. But. I love Twister. <laughs> I gotta go, I'm gonna Julia. Be a we got cows. So bad of that. <laughs> Another cow. I think that's, that's the, the same, same cow. cow. <laughs> <laughs> Patricia, I gotta let you go. We got cows. <laughs> 
Oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. She I, the, was a therapist. The extreme. <laughs> of all the movie references, of all the movie references I thought might pop up on this podcast, that's not one of them. That's a great movie. It's a classic. But do you guys get my point? Little Shania Twain there in the yeah. background? Yes. Like, what, what's interesting is we also have to balance that fine line. And, Rachel, this is even more kind of, like, interesting for you. Is you have to balance that fine line between, like, wife Rachel and yeah. support Jeremy and then clinician Rachel, what can I get out of him to learn from that road he's been down in? Oh, in yeah. Yeah, because I do. And we've talked about that. Like, I have to be really careful that I'm not stepping into just, like, seeking data or voyeurism. I'm just curious about what's going on in your head, and I have to be really respectful about that. <laughs> can you repeat that one more time? I didn't get it right now. <laughs> yeah. And so what happened? Right. Because make, then that's no, me, right? Says, how does I, that make you feel a lot? Again? I know, it. I know yeah, that no. question. Is like, <laughs> Jeremy's going to go, you're going to come home, and there's going to be a piece of wood that he's burned in there. How does that make you feel? <laughs> We're going to hang it over the couch by the horse picture. Um, uh. Because I, and that's me, right? Like I did that. I have my, I look back at my journals because it helped me a lot to understand more like acute trauma responses too. Because like I tracked what was going on for me. Like I tracked how many days it was that I wasn't eating, how many days it was that I was like, maybe a little more prone to want to drink or to drink to go to sleep or how long it took me to then get a full night's sleep. Um, you know, like I tracked all of that so that I could kind of normalize. Cause we'd all talk about like this two week mark. I'm like, okay, it was legitimately in this two week mark that I started to regulate. And then I had that delayed response. So it was helpful for me and that's kind of how I work that I'm going to explore what's going on. I'm going to seek information from it so that I can see just from real life experience, how it's helpful. Um, and then why we talk about it so much, but I do have to be careful that I don't, um, seek more information than you want to give because I'm <laughs> just pulling data, <laughs> but it's I'm just a clinical trial. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's why we're still married. Hey, you know what? Though? That's, that's one expensive <laughs> trial. I don't know how you yeah. put up with it. Yeah. But you know what, though? I'm fine with that because it's no different than the reason that this podcast got started. It's because sure. if you if I can give you one piece of information, mm -hmm. just one mm -hmm. that helps you with one of your clients yeah. or somebody else. Yeah. In the same way that if we can say one thing on this podcast, just one that will keep someone from going down that same road. Yeah. That's worth it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Cause this is a thing that we don't very often get to talk about, talk to somebody who, who survived an attempt, right? Like you, you have those people in there, like we're and people who have actually done interviews and stuff about, um, you know, what was going on before. And then like that, that moment of, of realization of death and then kind of a moment of of regret or whatever but it's not very often that that you get that and then a lot of people don't like for you and I think it helps people to know like there was because we wonder what if like what could I have done in that moment or what could I have done differently or what could I have seen or not seen because if if that hadn't have been interrupted that's the space I would be sitting in right of wondering like would you have regretted it or would what could I have done something or could I have stopped you or whatever? I'd be living in that. And um, I'm really, really grateful that I don't have to live in that space. Um, but I think even for me, it was helpful to know because I really did need to understand, like, was there something you were thinking about? 
And I wanted to know that for the sake of other people or to help other people. And so because so many people talk about it that at that moment of not like there's I couldn't see beyond that. Right. And and so for you, there was that experience of it. Um, And that's but that's why suicide is so painful, too, because there's answers like we're never going to get like it. That person dies with a whole lot of unanswered questions for for the survivors of it. And so I'm really grateful that I don't have to have those. And that's probably why we do talk about it, because if there's something in there that could help someone else. Because we don't get to know, right? Like people are trying to figure out why it is and people are trying to do research to even understand, like, is there something we can identify in the brain that is happening in that moment that we could do differently? Because like, it's a horrible death to have to, to live with. Um, and we don't entirely know, right? Because, but we do know that it's clearly a desire not, maybe not necessarily for physical death, but to get away from something. Yeah. Well, like we talked about, you would, you would think with the way that our brains are kind of wired for Mm -hmm. self-preservation. Right. It's really counterintuitive. It's super counterintuitive to like, you wouldn't think it would be an option. Like it wouldn't be a thing for humans to take their own life, you know, Mm -hmm. especially with like a spur of the moment thing, you know, but that's where I would love to really dig into what data is available and look at the different causes, right? So we have the, I don't like my, where my life is going cause we -hmm. have the, I don't see a purpose cause then we have the I don't want to be a burden cause. Um, you know, like there's, there's so many different causes. So there, I, I would be interested to see somebody that maybe got a new a second cancer diagnosis, right? They beat it once, got it again. I'm not putting my family through this again. Kills himself. Mm-hmm. That may be a completely different reason than why somebody who is unhappy with their life may. Right? Like it's... So, well, I think there's when you talk about the counterintuitive, like it's almost <laughs> it sounds really weird and hear me out, but it almost seems like more thoughtful of others, depending on the scenario, not encouraging it, not saying it's right. Right. Which is the well, thought that people have, like I'm somehow sparing other people. But yeah. that's what we have to why. That's one of the things that we have to talk about in it and destigmatize because like um, Dr. Springer talks about it in warrior as well so even if you talk about a culture and so you know she specializes in working with military and now works on the side of like suicide survivors so families and stuff of those who have died by suicide um but their job is to eliminate threat right and so if at some point like in in their minds that they become the thing that's threatening um that they're the thing to eliminate that then somehow it's do, still doing the same job that they're protecting other people by eliminating themselves as the threat, yeah. right? Which is just a big fucking lie that the right because everybody tells. would say no, like because I yeah. would have said to you if you would have died that day, I would have said I would what I live with on knowing about you and infidelity is nothing compared to your death and your death by suicide, right? And so, and that's what every survivor, suicide survivor lost survivor like those are who are left behind right would say to that person like no i'd ra- i would rather you be alive did you ever hear that show right to die 
So I I saw part of it. It was on HBO, I think. So it was this guy went over to um, Switzerland for assisted suicide. He had Lou Gehrig's disease. And basically they gave you, if, I, if it's the same show that I remember watching, they give you the stuff to drink. And it takes like mm-hmm. 30, 45 minutes to work. Mm-hmm. But once you drink it, that's it. And they, they were interviewing about everything. And basically his reasoning was he, so he's, he's at that stage of Lou Gehrig's disease where you're, you're, sure, I, you're shutting down. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to say you're a burden because you're not, but he feels like he's a burden to his family. They have to do everything for him, mm-hmm. and he's done. And he doesn't want to wait and suffer. So I, I think, you know, being able to go to a country like that and talk to people who are, have made that decision, I think that would give us some insight on the traumatic part, too. Yeah. Not, not all of it. I mean, there's still so many pieces, but at there least we, we could get a foot in the door maybe to an understanding of why. And that's, and that's why it's interesting. Like, of course the family will say, Oh, we'd rather have my loved one here. We'd rather have in a situation like that. We'd mm-hmm. rather them be here. We, we enjoy them. We want them here. Is that out of selfishness? Is it, you know what I mean? Like if, and we're talking about one specific example here, but like, is that a, is that a selfish thing? Is that, do we have to take a look at the bigger picture of I'm not getting better. It's going to be more of a burden on you. I don't want to be in pain. You don't want the ball and chain of taking care of me. There is a scenario. There you know, is a scenario well, to fix I, this I, here. I, here's what I'm going to say. I, I didn't about mean to that. start a d- uh, debate on. No, I think suicide. it's a whole different no, no. right. Like we just got so, into a whole different realm. That, that's a whole different ball game. But I think in that situation, um, I think that's each situation is different, and it's such a personal choice. As far as when you're talking about a, a terminal disease, especially like that, my best friend back in Louisiana, his mother passed from ALS. It's it's a terrible disease. Take my ass out to the pasture and shoot me. <laughs> yeah, please. So, but you're when you start talking about, so you have suicide as a whole, right? Mm-hmm. And then you start adding all of these things onto it like well this person had a terminal disease and they chose assisted suicide or you know this person was depressed and then they killed themselves yes they're both suicide but they're very different things and i don't think i don't you even know to, how you would you, you know what brought i the, think you got to se- because of you treatment have to separate too, and this is why because what we're talking about when you want to talk about suicide prevention and awareness and like for you guys too right like for these populations and for youth it's understanding that what they're talking about and what is leading to suicide are things that are treatable and things that can be addressed right like all of the stuff that you went through like that stuff could be addressed and treated right like you look at how how quickly you were able to that's a lifelong process but i think that that because i want to separate those out and that's the and that's where i'm seeing right which is for a brief moment, it's not treatable. This is the only way out. And see, in his mind. That's what. Yeah. That's yeah. why yeah. I brought so that, this whole point up is because he door. talked about how the thought that would be suicide would be a last option because of the th- the way we're designed is for self-preservation. Preservation. Yeah, yeah. And and that got me thinking. Well, like, are we? Well, again, though, you're you're adding a very specific stipulation onto it of. 
you kind of have to take the whole self-preservation thing out of it because you're, you're talking about a disease that is 100% fatal. There is no cure. It's completely progressive and you will be incapacitated and essentially unable to communicate or do anything on your own for quite a long time Mm -hmm. before you pass. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's horrifying for people. I I think how I'm looking at this as a progressive, like look at it as like a ladder, right? Mm -hmm. Like at the top, we have that suicide because of progressive disease. We don't want to put burdens on people. But then right down here, we still have that, the next step, which we could probably identify as treatable, would be that suicide because of loss of purpose, loss of future, is, you know, like, I think that's more difficult to treat than a infidelity, I am not happy with my life, I have an addiction problem, something along those lines. When you have, say you take a, especially with first responders, you take a first responder out of their career, Say they get a DUI. We'll say that. Which, luckily, that say they get a DUI, they lose their EMT license or something like that, their career fires them. Some sort of action, something that, loss of a limb, where they can no longer do their career. Then you have suffered a great loss of purpose, mm-hmm. especially when you've identified yourself in your career. How do you treat that? How do you force someone to find a different perspective, to find the same sort of usefulness that they had before well you can't, I, sorry go ahead i was gonna say you can't force anybody um especially with something like that what you can do at least from my perspective you can show them that they can still be valuable and give them options um you know and that's the that's the importance i think in wanting to do something, you know, and being committed to doing it, to getting better, to going through the process, knowing that it's going to be hard, whatever, you're still going to do it. You're not giving up. Even though, yes, I've lost my sense of purpose for this. It sucks. I can't do that anymore. Let me figure out what I can do. And I think that comes down to perspective and mindset. Now, how you get that perspective and mindset, you know, that varies by individual. Some people do it all on their own, and some people need to go see a clinician. My my concern is how do you get it before you would possibly commit suicide? Right, and well, and that's a lot of the work of the preventative work, right? And because you get, like, the field that you're in is reactionary, right? Like, something bad happens and you guys react to it. It's not necessarily out there preventing all of those accidents, right, and preventing that stuff. And so, which then kind of becomes a part of the culture. But I think that's why we have to talk about the prevention piece and, like, understanding that, like, don't go into this field, this being the end-all, be-all, and that this is who you have to be. And if you're not this, then you're nothing, right? And acknowledging that that can happen. Um, And so I think even just normalizing that and going, you got to set up for having life outside of it. Don't have, don't eat live and breathe it um because the potential loss because that's the reality of it right like you could get hurt or like anything could happen it could be the different scenarios like you could have all kinds of different scenarios that pull you out of the job um and so i think that that's a piece of it of just recognizing early on and getting at people early um going into the career right like how do we continue to set up better 
healthy mindsets and um, support systems and life outside of these careers. And because regardless, like there's something wrong, right? Like when you guys are in fields that that are high risk and more people, there's been more deaths by suicide than line of duty deaths. That's a problem. When we have so many kids who are killing themselves and by by even more extreme means like firearms and stuff where that wasn't like the top thing for children. And so that we're getting that like that's a problem. Something's wrong. Right. And so but it is starting to look at like we've got to go back and go, how can we set people up better? How can we prevent more? I'm curious if you remember the data or would have the data when we talk about our veteran suicides. Mm hmm. Do we see a larger percentage of suicides in the base of the injured or the physically injured or physically not injured? Uh, so I don't know if I know that, that it's, that it's split up. So, cause I think that, cause it's complex, right? Cause for somebody, if there's a physical injury, then that physical injury also like there could be PTSD because of that, mm-hmm. right? Or like associated with the same incident that caused it. Or then when we're talking about specific injuries that also cause brain injuries and stuff like that. So I think it's, you know, like we talk more about PTSD in regards to it. And because we know that, right? Like we know that that's going to increase risk and trauma is going to increase risk. Um, but I don't know about data that necessarily separates because they can be so. Intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's and, not usually one with necessarily without the other, especially if there's a well, physical injury from. Because my question is, I've noticed a lot, of, especially those that um, loss of limbs. Right, we had lots of loss of limbs in this last conflict due to IEDs and things like that. And I've noticed, like when they come back, they get lots of treatment, lots of rehab, physical and mental. They are a lot of them are placed in jobs. They have lots of opportunities. Because of the injury they suffered. Mm. Whereas, like, if you didn't, you're like... That's what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 If you didn't, you come back and you're like, good luck. Because the invisible... Right. That's yeah. why we talk about the invisible Get on out of here. War. See you later. Yeah. yeah. And... Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Cause, well, and that's and there's that comparison. And, I, you know, like, I think you guys do... I hear it all the time, both from first responders and from veterans, right? But, like, who... Well, I came back better. Like, if you take the whole of, like my my friends who both served or my unit or whatever and like i came back the healthier of the rest like i'm effed up but i'm less effed up right and so then there's that you guys minimize right like we know this like minimization no, is huge right? <laughs> everything's fine um and so there is that piece right like well i don't have you know i have all my limbs i just have this but so then they minimize the invisible wounds right like with the because PTSD doesn't necessarily show up on the outside. And so, and the same thing happens with you guys, right? And I'll have people come in, well, like, well, I've never been in combat. I shouldn't feel like this. Well, I haven't been in a shooting. I shouldn't feel like this. Um, You know, like, regardless. And I think that that's that's a piece of it. But that's also part of the problem of the expectations around it and shame and what it should look like and minimizing things or suffering in silence. Um, Because then that stuff's not getting addressed and treated. It, I, the minimizing is interesting to me. My ex-wife used to tell me I was doing that all the time, and it drove me crazy. So it's almost like a buzzword for me, almost. Mm-hmm. Because did that trigger you? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because like we make a career again. Part of our career is to minimize, right? If we had the same reaction for a cardiac arrest as we did for the person with the toe pain, you would say we would not be fit for duty, right? They huh. they cannot be met the same way. 
And yeah, that's going to apply to a lot of things. Like this person is missing a limb and partially blind. And I have a, had a broken leg out of the deal, but it's healed. They are not the same. Mm -hmm. The reactions cannot be the same. They should not Mm -hmm. be the same. Sure. And so, yeah, of course we're going to minimize because we recognize that need. But I think what's difficult for us is like, just because we may minimize it doesn't mean we get more or less treatment. It's just a different style of treatment. Yeah. So are you talking about, because I'm talking about minimizing your own stuff. Again, that's the same thing. Yeah. Like, Yeah. So, so the problem, sorry, I keep interrupting you. Go ahead. No, you're, you're good. You are the clinician. So you know more than me. Not necessarily. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, I actually... It's funny that you bring that up because earlier today I was watching a podcast with Mike Tyson and Bill Burr. Yes, it was hilarious. Hot boxing. It, Mike Tyson has his own little podcast with Jeremy Piven. The podcast. Yeah. And so they were talking about, and Mike Tyson asked Bill Burr, he said, you know, I've, I've heard that all of you comedians are fucked up. You know, you had fucked up childhoods and this and that. And Bill Burr told him, you know, look, my upbringing compared to your upbringing, he goes, I'm not going to sit here and complain about that. He goes, it was nothing. And Jeremy Piven made the point, and then Mike Tyson chimed in as well. And they're like, no, man, trauma's trauma, and you can't compare that. You know, yes, what Tyson went through as a kid, terrible. But what Bill Burr went through as a kid, equally as terrible in its own way for the way that it affected him. So whenever we sit here and try to qualify, you know, well, yes, you know, I've ran all these calls and they're fucked up and this and that, but I wasn't in combat and didn't see my buddy get shot. It, that doesn't matter. It, it, you can't compare. You because know, there is that slippery slope. I'm playing devil's advocate here. Yeah. We're going to play that slippery slope of participation trophy mindset then. Yes. You're not wrong. If you and if I'm you want to fly that flag, I'm not though, saying I'm not saying like nothing. I'm not trying to disregard yeah. what we're talking. But there is that slippery slope of like, yeah. Well, my feelings matter. To what extent? You can have this one. <laughs> <laughs> no, because I hear you. Because we also don't want to um, generalize everything and and like or minimize minimize or maximize everything right because it's not necessarily all like somebody it it's still experienced differently like one i think part of what you're saying is that you don't get to choose and you don't like you don't get to choose how your nervous system responds to it right and so that's that one significantly is a piece like we don't get the choice over how my nervous system is going to respond to stuff um and part of that can be from previous experiences too um but I think that it doesn't, so it's like taking individually. And I think that's the bigger thing. Like it doesn't have to be a conversation necessarily of comparison, but if you want to get complex about it, like it's going to look different with FMLA or disability stuff or whatever. Right. Like I think that's where stuff gets a little bit more or the debate about stuff gets a little bit more complex. Um, but I well, mean, I understand what both of you are saying. You talk about like, when you're looking at appointments, there's, there comes to a point, especially right now with the crisis that we're having, there has to come some sort of triage, right? Sure. In, in, a, 
in our medical field, triaging is easy. Like, you have a broken toe, you're not going to die. You're shot in the chest, you are going to die. And we can physically mm-hmm. look at it and say, you're fine, you're not. Mm-hmm. Whereas two voicemails you may have on your answering machine, that's all you have to triage from. And, you know, you're then now it's up to you to say, this person needs to get in here quickly, this person doesn't. But the end result for them is the same thing. Like, which could be potential suicide. You are not going to die from your broken toe. You are not going to. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. You could die from this crisis that you're going through because it may be the worst you've ever had and suicide may be the only outcome you know of. And all I have to do is this voicemail to make that determination. It's scary as fuck to me. Yeah, well, and and I typically have more, like, somebody screening more in some way, right? Like, so for some clinicians, they have somebody answering the phone that's maybe screening or if they're questioning, then, you know, I mean, I have a conversation with a lot of people um, where I don't necessarily determine it based on, based on a, um, you know, a voicemail or something. But I think that that also becomes a part of the piece where it's like we have to also acknowledge that none of us are um, – superheroes and have all the power to figure it all out and to know the right answer and to be able to have the crystal ball and know what that person's outcome is going to be. Right. But for us clinicians, obviously like, and there's certain, there's a screening process and there would be things that we would ask. And depending on the population too, of where you kind of know where somebody's maybe a little bit more risk than, than another. Um, and then you do your best for referrals. Right. Cause I like try to do the, like we all do the best we can on giving people resources and, and referrals and, you know, somebody that they can call or getting them connected where they know they can get into another place. But um, it's hard because none of us, and that's the same struggle, I think, for a lot of for first responders is you can't always control the outcome or know what the outcome is going to be. Like, you do your best with what you know in the moment. Well, into like, our, uh, it's pretty objective for us, right? Like, I can look at a EKG and say you are having right. a heart attack. Yeah, you are shot. You are. I hope you're answering these questions truthfully. Right. Like it. Right. So. Sorry, I just had to throw yeah. a monkey wrench in this whole conversation. Right. Well, no, it's true. <laughs> and then you you go by your best clinical intuition and yeah, but it's not cut and dry. Obviously, it's not a hard science working with people. So. No. Yeah. Yep. It's not. All right. Can we talk about how you just totally bailed on my question? No. You're like, uh, uh, uh you can answer this. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. It's a difficult question yeah. to answer because it's, it's like you don't want to minimize and invalidate what yeah. someone experiences. But yes, are there some qualitative differences between experiences? Yeah. And then the hard part is, is like, could I look at, you know, one of the examples that get brought up all the time is for, you know, the kid get that doesn't have anybody to sit with at the lunch table, right? And everybody's like, well, that's trauma, and I feel like I probably shouldn't even bring this up. Everybody's perspective is going to be different about that, right? Like somebody's going to say, like, that's a big T trauma or a little T trauma or whatever, or I'm traumatized because of that. But I think re- regardless, like, typically... And so it's not looking at it for an excuse. And I think that that's a big thing for me. Like, don't look at it for as a reason to be away or an excuse to be away. Like, there's stuff that changes. And but my work is focused on 
first responders and military, right? So, like, my focus is going to be on experiences and trauma and chronic stress associated with those populations and those experiences. Um, but nonetheless, am I going to minimize anybody's experience that is difficult for them when they come to my office? No, because, like, that's the way that they're experiencing it. Um, so I don't, I think across the board, we don't necessarily want to minimize, but I understand what you're saying. Like there's a difference, um, between experiences because then there just, there just is, we don't choose how we respond to it because sometimes that's just a reaction. And then sometimes it's what we've learned and our relationships and our support system and how our brain works and how our brain works because of development or neglect or whatever, like. It can be complex, but I don't think it's as cut and dried of an answer, you know, as you were hoping for, I, or that Jeremy can give. Yeah, I really wasn't. I, I really wasn't looking smarter. for a cut or dry yeah. answer. I, I really just wanted the conversation out of it. I so I saw a video the other day, and it was of like this college. It was on this college campus, and it was like some caucus mm-hmm. thing they were doing, and they were. It was it was a political based event, and it, they were all very far right, and they were all really focused on like sensory awareness for the meeting. So nobody clapped. They did this. Oh, I know what you're talking about. They were all they're all those were all far left people. Or far left, yeah, not far right. Sorry, far left. And they yeah. were like, and they were all like yelling at each other, like, "Stop the background noise! I'm completely overloaded with my sensory." And I'm just like, "What?" Yeah. They kept doing point of order. Yeah, and- they're like point of order. We can't have the like. I was literally just like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, you're not gonna get anything done. These like, everything triggered. Yeah, someone. And so my point being, right. like, it's like our culture now. This is why everybody so, jokes like, "I'm triggered right now." So right. okay, but yeah. here's my point. Like, yeah, I'm I'm diving real deep in here, but just stay with me, right? For a productive society, right? That seems counterintuitive. It is. There has to be. There's no resiliency. Go, yeah. Go watch Jordan Peters or Peterson. Jordan Peterson. Peterson. Yeah. There has to be a level of resilience that people need to have. And so my question for you, Rachel, is how do you teach that? How do you teach somebody to be tough? How do you tell them that their reaction may not be appropriate? Because sometimes it just isn't. Just isn't. Send everybody through buds. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) Or the cute course. (laughs) And maybe maybe that's why you're... with first responders and military, can, maybe it's easy because pass we, we, we <laughs> well, oh, it's really easy for the most part. Pass. Like, <laughs> well, for I, the like most I know this is what happens. It's that pressure, like at a debrief, like y'all have the right, like the choice to pass, but everybody gets the social pressure of like, but I have the oh, answer. you better answer this shit. <laughs> but no, the like, thing is, there's there's not a good answer to that question because you had to teach everybody differently well, how to respond to the same thing. So there is a good yeah. book, uh, uh, The Growth Mindset. So you could read that book. <laughs> so I'll just say that. Go, Grand, go, go read, read the, the book. Growth I'm Mindset. I'm going to watch the movie. Grit. Like, there's bu- grit. Like, that's a, you is know, so grit? I think that, no. like No, just grit. Um, because that is a concept that people are studying now, right? Like, how do we study grit? How do we study growth mindset? So, like, for the even for a young child, the child that hits something difficult and wants to work through it versus the kid that says, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, right? And so, like, people are, are studying that. Um, so, but I think it's more complex, right? Like, if you're talking about kids, it's going to look different than talking about um, 
an adult or but sure there are going to be times like if somebody's in my office and i'm hearing too much like and i don't want this to sound like disrespectful or minimizing if i'm hearing too much of that like victim mindset and i'm setting in that space of just victim mindset i'm setting in my poopy diaper and i'm not getting out of my poopy diaper right like i'm gonna challenge that right because i tell people that i'm like don't sit in your shit like and and that piece or if i'm hearing excuses like because you have to acknowledge like if somebody is not getting like and if somebody's not getting better like why are you not getting better like how does this these experiences these this trauma or whatever like what is it doing for you because sometimes there's a piece that keeps people in it because in some way it's serving something well you do have to acknowledge that and challenge that stuff sometimes uh, we are seeing more and more and it's it's all it's hard to kind of have this conversation without going almost political in some ways but yeah. i'll try and stay out of that but we also see it too in the way we're raised like if you're spoon-fed everything as you're grown up the first time you reach a challenge it's nah, i can't do it tough times create hard men hard men create easy times easy times create weak men i mean pe- we can say people but it's an old quote yeah but i mean just like when you know i know when i was a kid there was no you're gonna quit you're going to finish the soccer season, baseball season, football, whatever it was, whether I like that team or not. And then when it came to school, there's no, you're going to sit on the floor and keep crying, but you're going to spell the damn word correctly over and over and over, or you're going to figure out the math problem. There was no quit. There was no mom and dad are going to come in and do it for me because I have to learn it. And you, and you learn early that. on that the world is an unforgiving place. And not to make people mad, but it doesn't give a shit about you. It doesn't give a shit about me either. Just keep plugging away, and that's the way it is. No tantrum you throw will solve anything. You could be mad all you want. I, I, you know what? I, more power to you. Be mad, but get it done. Because the world does not care. I'm sorry. It just doesn't. Greatest speech ever. Well, not- Rocky Balboa. Yeah. It's not about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit. So I, I would hope that we could be a little less cynical. <laughs> I'm not trying to be cynical, but that's just that's breaking it all the way down to the, so, to the base of it. I'll, I'll, I'm going to challenge in your thought process here, and in your whole, I'm going to break. If you're not that cynical, are you truly preparing anybody that leaves your office for how cynical the world actually is? Oh, you, everybody coming in my office is already jaded by the like, okay. effect of my well, yeah, true, nobody's true. coming in like uh, Pollyanna <laughs> so I don't have to do that say you didn't do first responders though yeah it... oh sorry yeah. you were staring at me. I don't know no. um, so wait what's the question so I'm, say, say you didn't do first responders because I made because uh-huh. we all come in realizing the world is shitty so you don't have to convince us of it but how do you how do you take those almost I guess affluent individuals that have been spoon fed and toughen them up when they leave your office per se if you weren't doing first responders um well i mean i guess the pass reality check (laughs) just say it it's all you got to do well because it is complex right like i don't think like i think it would depend on the individual of like how they show up with something right but i think that there's so even like with a child right like when a child is reacting in a certain way i'm always going to respond though like there's empathy is going to be a part of that even if there's correction and behavior Um, and there's redirecting or whatever, like, but there can still be empathy. Um, and that is a huge thing. Like we need, so regardless of whether you're a child or an adult, there's still some recognition and that diffuses, right? Like if you have a kid 
who, okay, so like my little nephew, his toy pinches him last night and he was tired already. So he's like crying and crying, crying, crying more than you would expect from what happened, right? My response is I knew like his volume was up higher than it necessarily quote unquote needed to be or should be, right? My response is gonna be empathy and comfort and then encouragement to continue, right? But that's the base that I wanna come from still is empathy and acknowledgement, but encouragement to, to keep going, encouragement to, and that builds resiliency, like relationship and um, healthy attachments and all yeah, that stuff ch- creates. Choke them out, it's easier. <laughs> <laughs> and that, it's that builds that, right? And it's, but then there is an awareness of, right, we don't get everything that we want and life is difficult and things happen that are ugly and unfair and you know, awful. That's going to be the question of human nature yeah. forever of why do bad things happen? Um, that's life. <laughs> right. It's not perfect. It ain't pretty. But that's life. And it's a wonderful thing. I like disagreeing with people, trying to see it from the other side. That's one of the best things about life. Because if we all agreed on everything, it'd be pretty damn boring. If we were all walking around like robots. Yeah. But, it's, you know, start, unfortunately it starts at a young age. And people just aren't taught that anymore. It's okay to lose. You can learn more from losing than you do from winning. Yeah. And it toughens you up. Like, I, you know, when Ben was a kid, I didn't let him win. Every once in a while I would. But I'd, Did no. you dunk on your child? No, because I can't dunk. <laughs> Fuck you. <laughs> I'm short. <laughs> and vertically challenged when it comes to jumping. <laughs> But I mean that's that's the lesson you gotta learn. You're not always gonna hit a home run, mm-hmm. or or the game winning, you know, make the game winning basket or, or how, whatever you want to however you want to put it. You're not always gonna get a hundred on a test. Doesn't mean you failed. It just means you gotta work a little harder. You gotta put that work in to make things better. Mm-hmm. Three out of ten. Three out of ten gets you the Hall of Fame, unless you're Pete Rose. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I'm, and I'm not saying you can't be empathetic. I, you know, empathy is a great thing, but at some point you got to stop holding people's hands. Yeah, and I think that's the thing. Like, empathy doesn't have to be coddling, and it doesn't have to like don't like we don't want to make excuses or use stuff as an excuse or be sick to get something from it or whatever. Like, and and I think that's that's a thing, right? Like, because grit and resilience and that growth mindset is it's something that's appealing and that we want and that we want to encourage in our children and stuff, right? Like I can go through adversity. Like I don't have to become it. I don't have to shut down because of it. I don't have to quit because of it, um, that it can be a builder. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so yeah, I get it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I got I, to tiptoe around stuff too. So. No, I, I, <laughs> I couldn't do your job. I don't think any, the three of us could, cause there's just that, no, well, I mean, I fan of people. <laughs> I mean, we we know how we were raised, and mm-hmm. it was not easy. No, didn't no, involve much coddling. No, nope. that's for sure. But I mean, you, you had everything you needed, mm-hmm. and you were taught the lessons that needed that had to be learned. Mm-hmm. And your parents still loved you; they cared about you; they provided for you. But you had to earn your shit too. You know, it wasn't just hey, I need twenty bucks to go to the movie. Well, what are you going to do for it? I'm not going to hand it to you because nothing's mm-hmm. handed to you once you're an adult. Like, I see kids with credit cards now. What the actual fuck? Yeah. 
I mean, I right. Still, but that's still what you need to know that they phone. loved you. I think that's a bigger thing, it right? Is. Like mm-hmm. earning, I, I like the same thing with my son. That's like, a big piece. You're gonna learn. He, he, yeah. He, he's working. He has an apartment now. He's 19. He's almost 20. But, you know, he still needs help. You know, I will I'm say I'm not gonna give you this money. You're gonna mow the yard. You're gonna pick up dog shit because I don't want to do it. I will say for me though, it <laughs> it's was totally worth paying for. It was a delayed <laughs> response by about 20 to 25 years. Mm-hmm. Right, like we see now, like I need 20 bucks for the movies. No, throw a tantrum, give them the twenty dollars. See, my mom loves me. It really didn't click for me till I was physiologically, you know, in my brain, developing into an adult. And there were more situations I would look back and be like, oh. yeah. It, when you get older, it clicks. It clicks. Right. So, like, yeah. yes, I sacrificed on the front end the instant gratification and feeling of coddling or whatever you want to say for the bigger picture and now i'm also a contributing member to society that doesn't sit down and cry when people clap too loud so i mean yeah i don't know i think this is a an issue like yeah there's so many complexities to it and you're talking about very much that the social media culture too oh, that like Instagram. labels are oh, yeah and everybody thinks they're road. everybody thinks they're a clinician and everybody you know like because of stuff that comes through on social media that gives some tidbits about mental yeah. health or something then the everybody thinks like or, or, they, or they diagnose doctor. themselves and <laughs> yeah and so with md and i hear and i think what your experiences are too like you're gonna naturally because i get it like i will set when if i have a day of really intense stuff or really you know things going on with clients or i'm dealing with crisis or whatever um and then somebody calls me and is you know complaining about i don't know like our chairs i remember that came up and i was super annoyed one day because i was like i don't give a shit about the chairs right now like (laughs) i'm talking about you know i'm like trying to keep somebody alive or get somebody help or whatever and so i think when you're exposed to stuff and just like you guys are like it's easy to go like the other stuff seems stupid Right. And it's also easy to go home and go like, I don't care about the paint on the walls because I was just running calls like this all day or dealing with crisis after crisis or a bad call or whatever, or a night without sleep. And so I think, so we have to recognize that of what people are exposed to creates a different either sensitivity or desensitivity for, to make up a word. Um, but then also recognize what is relevant for somebody else and what is important to somebody else. But I think that we can minimize um, legitimate diagnoses by overexposing people to various symptoms, right? Like just even like PTSD, like not everybody gets PTSD, but because we talk about it constantly, everybody, there's so many people who will self-diagnose and go, I have PTSD um, or assume that majority of people have PTSD when that's statistically not the case, right? Is there PTS? Absolutely. Um, but not everybody ends up with a diagnosable disorder. Um, you know, and so, the, and then I think sometimes there are parts of society or culture that feed um, the benefits that come from certain disorders or diagnoses, too, that we have to be careful of. But that sounds like a whole another show. Yeah. Yeah. We could argue and fight on that one. <laughs> but so be it like i mean like this is one of the most getting to the bottom of our souls conversation that we've had in a while uh yeah 
This might be one of those where we text each other and be like, did you sleep good last night? <laughs> no. <laughs> <sighs> so what is the summary today? Oh, shit. Don't suffer shit. in silence. I think if I could stand with anything, though, that would be my thing, right? For for you guys, for regardless for anybody. And this is, I, I challenge my sister on all this all the time because I had read that story to her because there was, sorry, she probably won't watch this anyway, but... Um, there was a time when she wow. was a little girl. That I don't mean it like brutal. that. She she gets she gets, she's so empathetic to my story that it's hard for her to hear things for me, right? Because then it she gets upset by knowing if I experienced pain. So she's gonna hate Jeremy more. <laughs> she, no, she loves Jeremy now. Um, now, but uh-huh. he was a little bit difficult to like at times. Was so was. When she was a little girl, there was like um, a wasp that was in her shirt that was, and she was in school and it was stinging her repetitively. It's like much like that fox thing, right? And she wasn't saying anything. She was so quiet and not speaking up about it. And so it's like this wasp just continued to sting her while she was sitting in, in class and not saying anything. And that is something that we talk about all the time of, because that is a part of her personality to suffer in silence and to not say what's going on and to not ask for help um and so we talk about that all the time and that's what that's what this is and that's part of what we have to acknowledge like don't so don't compare it don't pick up parts of of this talk today and hear like oh i need to minimize it or i'm making i'm making excuses my trauma is not as bad as the next guy so now i'm not gonna say anything right because that's what we have to stop doing like get out of the comparison part, get out of the stigmatization part, get out of like the suffering and silence part. Cause that's what leads us to, and this is what you did and what so many people do, right? They just don't address or acknowledge or even sometimes aware of what's going on. Um, but that's my thing. And to know, like there's so much out there and that's why, you know, like why we have these books down here. Cause other clinicians like Tanya Glenn in Texas and Shauna Springer and, um, like I, the code four book of Tanya's, which I think I actually just gave out my last one. Cause I give that to a lot of clients cause it just helps to understand, um, how to stay resilient in the realm of public safety. And there's so much stuff out there. Um, and it doesn't have to be like, it's not weakness to acknowledge that. Um, but we have that mindset of that culture of like that stoicism, like it talks about, like that's somehow strength to let the Fox, eat your gut and not say anything to anybody. Yeah, that's counterintuitive. Because we'd ask for help for anything else. Don't suffer in silence. Don't suffer in silence. Yeah, I like it. All right. Do you have anything to add, James? I love today. I did. Good. Cool. You good? You want to add anything? I'm good. Nelson even talked more than usual. So what I'm gathering is actually, we're just going to replace you Shut up. with Rachel. Be, Perfect. Yep. I quit. I, I think he no. was talking. I'm not to willing me. to get oh, controversial. I'm not talking to me. I have to step. I have to be so careful. I'm like, I'm not willing to be controversial. Yeah, I'm going to try to stay neutral. Yeah. Yeah. He's not willing it's to be awkward. controversial either. I mean, yeah. It's interesting that like, there's nope. I'm being good. Is is truly breaking down something and making yourself uncomfortable controversial? I, you know, I with this subject, 
with it, with anything somebody can find offense to anything yeah so, somebody so, can find offense to anything with this subject it seems depending on who you talk to it could be controversial but kind of the thought that i had is you know especially and i'll speak just to the fire service we're supposed to be like a family right we're supposed to be for lack of a better term our brothers keepers mm -hmm. you know two in two guys going in the fire two firefighters going in the fire two firefighters come out right this is no different we have to stop treating the mental health issue that we have that is rampant in the fire service we have to stop treating it with the stigma that it is and look at it my perspective of looking at it is it's like an injury it's no different than when you hurt your shoulder or hurt your knee or something like that it is something that you can heal from if you take the right steps go do your pt go to an expert we have to start looking at it that way instead of oh well they're just not cut out for the job you know, we're supposed to be a family. We need to start taking care of each other and start giving a shit. So that's my perspective. Yeah. And I, I want to say, because I, I don't want to, we're, I know I was dancing around where both of you were, but it's like, it's okay to put people, like, to talk to somebody similar traumas to similar traumas that's well, what i'm trying to mic. say your hands are getting i know they're careful. getting a little wonky so and i know chris is hurting so it's like right like we don't put like i'm not going to have a group a, a group of combat vets with um you know a veteran who was just state who and i'm i don't want to say the word state or just but who was deployed stateside right like those things might be look different those groups might look different so a parent who loses a child to suicide i'm not going to put them in a support group with somebody who just lost their you know parent to cancer right there are different things there are different experiences different traumas that sometimes need to be put together which is which is okay that's also okay to knowledge that doesn't have to make something better or worse they're different experiences and painful in different ways and some have a greater intensity than others do which is okay but it doesn't have to it doesn't have to minimize the other personal experience of somebody. But All right. hurting. okay. Well we're I agree. <laughs> <laughs> oh sorry, I had to stand up. Chris is no, in pain. Dude, I'm sorry, I'm, dude, I'm dying over here. I, I get it. I get it. Um thanks for sticking it out. Oh. So and nice bath <laughs> Yeah. <coming up. laughs> Thanks, everybody, for stopping by like we end every episode. If you're struggling, reach out. There are resources out there. If you know somebody that's struggling, reach out to them. Let them know that you care. Let them know there are resources out there for them. Um, thanks for stopping by, and we'll see you next week.